This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. James Riotti is the CEO of Lippo Group, one of Indonesia's largest conglomerates with annual revenues of some $3 billion. The group, among the most active property developers in Southeast Asia, has expanded into China and Hong Kong and plans to invest $10 billion over the next five years in the Asia-Pacific region. It also has interests in media, telecommunications, retail, and healthcare. Fifteen years ago, Riyadi was responsible for the establishment of Universitas Polita Harapan in Indonesia, and he has a strong interest in the social impact of business. During an interview with Knowledge at Wharton, Riyadi explains the lessons he has learned over the years from successes and failures in business and politics. Uh, Mr. Riyadi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. For the past year, the global economy has been struggling through an unprecedented economic and financial crisis. Uh, how did the crisis affect Indonesia? Well, it, it, it affects everybody. It affects the whole uh, economic system, the financial system. Uh, but it affected Indonesia in a lesser sense. Because Indonesia had always valued more... Uh, stable growth rather than um, growth uh, in, in a more liberal sense. So I think Indonesia have, have, uh, have benefited from it. Uh, it always had maintained uh, uh, a very conservative macroeconomic policy. Uh, and uh, so actually Indonesia now has become the darling of, of Asia. Uh, we have uh, an economy that's growing uh, and it's stable with all the right microeconomic uh, indicators. Inflation is low. Uh, Indonesia did not have to uh, did not have to do the kind of stimulus packages that the U.S. and China and other countries had to do. Um, so it's so it's been it's been a uh, Indonesia has been vindicated all these times they've. They have valued stable macroeconomic uh, policies. So when everybody was growing very fast, Indonesia was saying, you know, how come you're not growing as fast? But right now, it benefits. <clears throat> right. uh, when the crisis hit, how did the government of President uh, Yudhoyono react? And how did the measures succeed in improving the economy? Uh, when the crisis uh, happened, uh, the most important is uh, is our culture of responsiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people look at a crisis and do nothing about it, don't respond, and and start to have uh, denial that things are going to be uh, behind us. But I think Indonesia had 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 always had a culture of responsiveness. So I think uh, the country quickly <coughs> uh, took measures. To make sure that the financial systems is is stable, to continue to maintain uh, the this, uh, the trust in the in the system, and then to uh, quickly correct whatever financial uh, imbalances there were, the government were quick to go out around the world to to work with central banks, <clears throat> with China, with Japan, and so on, to gain uh, liquidity liquidity standby credit lines. 
and and uh, to be at the forefront in the community talking about it, that Indonesia is different from from the other countries. So I think that that has built up confidence among the all the players to keep on going. Uh, specifically, how are the banking and real estate sectors affected? Because, as you know, worldwide, these were the two sectors yeah. that took a big hit. The banking sector is the barometer uh, of the whole economy. Especially during this last crisis, the banking sector is the one that got hit the most. But uh, fortunately for Indonesia, our banking sector uh, went through the consolidation and the restructuring in 1998, from the 1998 crisis. Uh, all the banks at that time were audited by the World Bank and uh, by the IMF, I meant. Uh, and as a result, uh, they were all capitalized. So Indonesian banks entered this crisis in a much better shape uh, than, than other banks. Uh, loan deposit ratio, average loan deposit ratio for the banking system <clears throat> entering the crisis was 56%. Uh, and so it had the liquidity. Uh, it had got strong balance sheet, uh, strong capital ratios to, to enter this crisis. Uh, what kind of strategies did the Lippo Group have to adopt to cope with the crisis? Relative? Well, uh, for Lippo, um, again, <coughs> the whole concept of responsiveness is very important. So, uh, for Lippo, um, we we went around and uh, agreed that in times of crisis, you serve the customer better. So, I think that's the most important in a, in a service industry. In a, in an industry where your basic commodity is trust. So you serve them better. When you serve them better, you know, they support you. So that's what we did. Uh, I think if you enter the crisis in a bad, bad shape, there's very little you can do to really come out of it in one piece. So again, uh, I must say that uh, we entered the crisis because of 1998. 1998 uh, forced a lot of companies and uh, Indonesia as a whole to be more disciplined. So it was a blessing in disguise. 1998 crisis was a blessing in disguise. Now your family has been active in business for uh, generations. Uh, could you share some of that background with our audience? Uh, my father is a senior banker. He's probably the most senior banker right now in, in Indonesia. And <clears throat> he had always believed that in life, you know, we must contribute to nation building, into society by generating um, economic growth, investments, uh, jobs, uh, and at the same time uh, support uh, uh, the whole concept of social impact, social causes, and we do that through education and healthcare. Um, so that has been a tradition, and I think uh, uh, through hard work and through uh, just sensible uh, uh, managing of our companies, you know, we have we've we've come so far, uh, this far. Uh, it was your father, I believe, who uh, after he founded the Lippo Group, sent you to the U.S. Uh, to build the the operations here. Uh, could you tell us about your earliest experiences in trying to build 
a business in America and what challenges you faced? <coughs> yes. Uh, uh, well, there are actually three parts to my U.S. experience. The first part was when I first graduated. Uh, I, I trained as, as, a, as a banker in New York, then as an investment banker, uh, and then I went back. And so those experiences were invaluable. Uh, it, it allows me to see the world because New York is the capital city, uh, financial capital city of the world. Uh, the second time around, um, we started to uh, this. Uh, we started to build a base here in in in, in the U.S. Uh, we learned a lot that second time around. I learned a lot second time around. Um, but it was at a time when America was going through a, a deep crisis in the 80s. Uh, and at the same time, uh, we underestimated how mature the U.S. market was. Uh, and so how um, intolerant the U.S. system is for, uh, for, for mistakes. In what sense? In the sense that in a growing economy, in a developing and growing economy, uh, the growth was so fast that you can afford to make a lot of mistakes. <clears throat> you come to the U.S. Uh, thinking the same way. Uh, now, the American system is very, uh, what do they call it? Ruthless. Eh? Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, you cannot afford to make mistakes. So actually, uh, my... Uh, experience that second time around coming to the U.S. was more failure than uh, success. Uh, I made a lot of mistakes, uh, uh, a lot of confidence, maybe in many sense overconfidence. But through all the mistakes, I learned the most valuable lessons in my life. And that I learned the kind of discipline, uh, regulatory discipline, uh, market discipline and so on. That was invaluable as I went back to Asia and went through the next phase of our group's uh, uh, development. So I would say that the second time around when I came to the U.S., I, what I learned from the American banking system helped build a stronger foundation for our banking group and our whole group that helped us to uh, withstand the 1998 crisis. What would be an example of a mistake that you made and what lessons did you learn from it? Well, uh, you know, we started setting up businesses here and, you know, uh, properties, uh, property development, for instance, thinking that there's a lot of growth and thinking that, you know, you can always create demand and so on. The, real, the, the, the reality is that America is much more uh, mature market uh, and... I think uh, we learned that. Now, in the banking sector, uh, Asian banks have been used to loan deposit ratio of well over 100%. Uh, in Indonesia, what was normal was 135%. So as you started in the U.S., you thought that the normal one was 100%. Uh, well, the American system had a much uh, healthier, stricter uh, banking regulatory environment. The minute your loan deposit ratio gets above 70%, they call you up and ask you, what, what, what are you trying to do? So, you know, it was those kind of things that, you know, you're learning through that process. But as a result, 
I went back and I said, you know, our banking system, our own banks must be at 70, maximum 75% loan deposit ratio. So that helped us to survive going through the 1998 crisis. And in, in, in recent years, in addition to you know, your traditional businesses and banking and real estate, you have also had tremendous focus on education. Yes. Uh, for example, with the opening of uh, uh, Putian University in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, what prompted this initiative and what do you hope to accomplish in the field of education? We saw um, a great boom in the economic development of Asia between 1975 to 1995. Over a 20-year period, Asia saw you know, a tremendous uh, growth. <clears throat> and it continued on in spite of the uh, necessary corrections 1998 and so on, and 2008. Uh, but we can see that as so much wealth is, is being created, uh, that that is not sustainable because there are a lot of gaps uh, in our societies. The gap between the rich and the poor, the gap between the educated and the uneducated, between the healthy and the malnourished, uh, infrastructured and uninfrastructured. So we saw a lot of gaps, and which means that it's just a matter of time before things will fall apart. And it's not sustainable. And the key is actually education. Uh, so we felt that as part of our CSR, as part of our stewardship responsibility, uh, we must support education. Uh, and so we have since then went into a, in a, in a very serious way to build schools and universities and to support schools and universities that uh, have that kind of vision in Indonesia, in Singapore, in, in, in China. Uh, over the course of your career, you have known and worked with several business and political leaders. Uh, which leaders have had the most impact on you and why? Uh, I think I... Uh, I've, of course, I've been very much blessed from my father. Uh, he's an outstanding banker, very experienced and wise man. Uh, but I've, I've, uh, I've been greatly uh, uh, influenced by uh, an investment banker called Jack Stevens. Uh, I spent my earlier, earliest years, uh, beginning years, uh, interning and training at, at his investment bank, Stevens Inc., and I learned the uh, investment banking mentality that uh, uh, you know you have to understand values uh, and value creation. You have to understand markets, um, and so you know that that that, made, that that had a profound impact on me. Um, and frankly, also my. Uh, church life uh, have had a huge impact on that whole concept of stewardship. That you know, in in the beginning, when you go into business, making money was the goal. But uh, over the years, I've learned that you know you should work hard and make money and create value, but not 
um, as an end on its own, but as a uh, as as a means to bless society and uh, become a blessing to the communities around us. Uh, so, but if, if this one person, it was it would have been Jack Stevens, uh, because he instilled in my mindset about what business is all about. What do you believe to be the most important qualities of a leader? Uh, I believe that uh, a leader needs to have a vision uh, because at the end of the day, the, the vision must drive the organization, must drive people. And, 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 um, and a strong vision would, uh, would, would attract people like a magnet and, um, and get people to, to, to do things and make changes in the, co in the community. But I think it's not just about having a vision, but having a personality of humility, humbleness. You know, uh, and that's very difficult. The more successful you are, the more you are faced with temptations of being egoistic and prideful and all of that. So I think humility, but also uh, servanthood, to serve. You know, the, the heart to serve, the heart to, uh, to do things not for yourself, but for others. Uh, I think those are the three things that I would, I would think. Vision, humility, servanthood. That's a great answer. <clears throat> you know, another crucial quality of that in many leaders that I have found is resilience, which is the ability to bounce back after a setback. You referred to some of the failures uh, mm. that you experienced in the U.S. And there was another example of a setback during the 90s when mm. you know, some fines were imposed on you yeah. because of you know, the uh, election uh, laws. Could you tell us what lessons did you learn from these experiences in terms of resilience? I was very fortunate uh, to have known a lot of high-powered uh, business and political leaders in my life. What I learn in life, the wisdom that I get in life about all of this is that money and power, they are both a blessing and a curse. Yes. So uh, I learned that, you know, yet when I went through business school and so on, you know, uh, uh, they, they didn't teach you that. They, they just teach you one side of the coin. That money and power is just, you know, a blessing. That's what you should aim and, and, and do all those things. But I learned it, uh, and, and at, at times the hard way, uh, including uh, this uh, in 1996 when, when, when I had to f uh, face the reality that uh, business and politics does not, does not mix. It does not mean that you do not interact with the politics, but you don't really try to get in. So I learned that. Uh, so trying to be ever since then, trying to be wiser and and try to remind yourself that money and power, they're both a blessing and a curse. That's a great, great answer. 
what would you believe to be your greatest success and your greatest failure? Oh, the Chinese saying that you know you go, you have to wait until your coffin is is is, is <laughs> nailed. The last coffin is nailed before you can say that. But I, uh, I think uh, the the biggest failure is still continue uh, to be a struggle for humility. I think the biggest uh, success uh, would be to. Uh, would be to to grow in that stewardship. Uh, I, I you know I believe that perfection is not being an angel, but having the right direction, the right motivation, and you have started along that process. And I believe that, uh, especially in the last eighteen years, there's been a huge change of value value system in my life. Uh, that puts relationship uh, uh, above uh, material uh, things, uh, and so I believe that's that's been a bigger shift in, in my life. <coughs> and I guess my 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 most exciting thing in my life would be to support education and to be involved in education and healthcare and. I think the things that we are doing in education and healthcare is transformational. Very can, proud of that. Can, can you tell us some examples of the things that you are most proud of that you are doing in education and healthcare? Well, uh, I wasn't born and, and, and I did not grow up in a particularly uh, educational environment. But when I went back to Indonesia, in 1970, in 1978, with my four children that that grew up in in in, in the U.S., uh, and I had to look for schools for them. I realized that, uh, that we we do not have top schools in Indonesia uh, that uh, I would consider uh, putting my kids in. So I said, you know, there's a great deficiency in education in Indonesia, and I, and I set out to, to, uh, to contribute something to make to make a change. So we set up a foundation, a non-profit foundation, educational foundation, the Pelita Harapan Educational Foundation, and started building schools and universities. And today we have 20 schools and, and a university that has transformed Indonesian education. Uh, uh, we introduced. Uh, education uh, system that is not road memorization. So the problem we have is road memorization when we need creative uh, process of learning. So it's not about knowledge, it's about process of learning. Uh, large classroom sizes, and we wanted small classroom sizes. But an education that is holistic and gets people to develop all parts of the life structure of every student, as opposed to just certain life structure. Uh, so, uh, and what we want is not just to have good schools. We want to have model schools that other schools can look at and say, that's the model that we also want to copy. And so for the next generation, uh, our schools hopefully will be the spokesman of what good education is all about.
what good schools are, uh, are all about. So I think it's exciting because that's transformational. That uh, you know we started paying teachers the salaries that they deserve. So we've been uh, the single biggest factor in increasing uh, salaries of teachers by three to four times over the last 15 years. Uh, and so giving, instilling in the community that education has a high value, uh, which in today's modern and postmodern society, as you know, uh, there has been a shift that you know people do not respect and value teachers as much as they should. So we're very proud of that. And I think that's, I hope when I one day finish my life, uh, that my biggest impact would be in education. One last question. How, how do you define success? Uh, I think at the end of the day, when you die and you're in your coffin, what is the highest thing that you want people around your coffin to uh, to, to say about you? Uh, so that's defined what, what what you want in your life. And for me, uh, the highest and the most uh, beautiful thing that people can say about you when you die is, is to say that you have been a godly man. You've been a man of God. Uh, that in your life, there's been many clear evidences in your life that you want to live a godly life. Uh, and that does not mean that you're perfect, you're a saint. It just means that you know, you've got the right direction. Uh, a godly man will automatically means that you love your family, you love your society, uh, and everything that you do have a purpose beyond material uh, issues. And that uh, uh, you want to have a social impact, that what you do, uh, that ethics and morality are important. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.